Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Proceedings Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hammett. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. So we have a very special episode of the show today, so why don't we get right to it? We'll, we'll skip the chit-chat about Navy football because the news there wasn't so great. So yeah, let's get right to our guest yeah, today. let's do that. So. Let's skip the chit-chat about <laughs> Navy football. Yeah, so joining us from uh, Coast Guard headquarters is the Commandant of the Coast Guard, Admiral Carl Schultz, who's here with us today to talk about a new strategy that he and the Coast Guard are about to launch on illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing. Welcome, Commandant. Hey, thanks, uh, Bill and Ward. Excited to be here with you and uh, chat about this IAU fishing threat. So, sir, you're getting ready to, to launch this strategy, make it public uh, what, two days from now, Wednesday, this week. That is correct. Absolutely. And is this an, uh, an entirely new strategy or is it just an updated IUU strategy? Where, where do we stand? So, so, Bill, this is a first time Coast Guard strategy on IU specifically. You know, we've been involved in illegal, unregulated, unreported fishing operations enforcement, you know, for decades here. But this is a little bit of a, a step up of our game. We're going to put out what we call a 10 year strategic outlook, and it's going to really elevate um, the Coast Guard's level participation and leadership role. We think this is a, an evolving, increasing global threat to, to national security of many nations here. And as, um, you know, consumer of fish products, as a force of maritime governance across the globe, a recognized force, we think the Coast Guard can bring a leadership voice to this. It's it's whole of government in many parts. It's also a lot of outside um, NGOs, academic institutions. We're trying to leverage our, our brand a little bit and synchronize those voices. So, uh, as Bill mentioned, IUU stands for Illegal, Unreported, and Unregulated. Why should the American public care about this issue? Well, I would tell you there, Ward, that um, that IUU fishing poses a threat to the sovereignty of the United States and to our partner nations with shared interests. Um, we're talking about depleting what is otherwise a renewable source of uh, protein. Uh, fish is a source of protein for about 40% of the global population. Um, these distant water fleets operate across the globe. You know, just as an example of that, we had the Coast Guard Cutter Bertoff. I was out in California, just got back here Thursday evening from a drug offload early in the morning. They removed a lot of drugs from the transit zone. Different topic, different day. But one of the things they did down there at the request of the Ecuadorian government, who's a partner with us in the counter-narcotics fight, was, hey, we got a large uh, report of 350, 400 Chinese distant water vessels, mostly Chinese vessels, operating off the Galapagos Marine Reserve. And Ecuador is one of those coastal nations, the Navy capacity, but somewhat finite capacity. And, um, you know, they're concerned about their sovereign rights, their coastal rights. Um, some of this distant water fleet that operates across the globe, they should be squawking on automated identifications of AIS. But there's a lot of they're spoofing. There's other things go on. And basically these threaten uh, food sources. These distant water fleets often operate in countries with limited governance and enforcement mechanisms and sort of developing areas. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons. There's sort of three or four primary areas. It's off the west coast of Africa, the east coast of Africa. It's in the Pacific. And we're seeing even an emerging threat here off of Latin America. I mentioned off of Ecuador, off Argentina. It's a big issue. Uh, U.S. Southern Command's getting a lot of demand signal from their partner nations in the hemisphere to, to be helpful on this front. Well, sir, you mentioned there's 350 or so Chinese distant water uh, fishing vessels just off the Galapagos. How, how, how big is their fishing fleet? 
So the Chinese fishing fleet, Bill, you know, it's a little bit of ambiguity around that. Some, uh, I think China's talked about driving down their distant water fleet to about 3,000 vessels this year. Some suspect there's 17,000 distant water fleet, and that may be underreported. So it's, it's a very large number. You know, by comparison, when you roll up China and Taiwan, they have the world's two largest fleets. Collectively, they comprise about 60% of the total distant water fishing fleets operating across the globe. You know, the U.S., which is down in single digits, is about the sixth largest distant water fleet, and we come in with less than a couple hundred vessels. And think about Ecuador. You're talking about 9,000 miles or so from, from China, and these are ships that stay to sea, stay at sea for you know a year, two years at a time. Some of the contracts the, the, the operators do are multi-year contracts. They're processing ships at sea. Most of this catch is not harvested in another nation's or in the city of another nation's EEZ and supports those local economies. And most of that fish, 60-70%, all goes back to the China mainland and feeds uh, their, their demand signal for uh, fish products. So how does the IUU strategy support the national security strategy? You already mentioned why Americans should care. Uh, specifically, how does uh, this program you're about to roll out support the national security strategy? Well, I would tell you um, on that front, Ward, we're looking to roll out a strategy with, um, with three lines of effort. And those three lines of effort really get after, um, you know, promoting targeted, effective, intelligence-driven enforcement operations. So how do we work with um, other government entities, um, NGOs, academic institutes, and, and really paint the domain awareness? You know, I would say there's a, a unique opportunity to really better understand wh who owns these fleets, where these fleets are operating, and have more transparency through knowledge. I think there's some big data analytics aspects that go with that. You know, the second is how do we counter predatory and irresponsible state behavior? So you have this flag fleet, you know, for the U.S., we exercise pretty rigorous control on our U.S. domestic um, distance water fleet. And know if, if other nations are operating absent that oversight from the flag state, you know, there's a competitive disadvantage for this U.S. fishermen. Here domestically, about a third of the fish we consume is actually, we suspect, is actually obtained through IUU means. It's, it's illegally... IUU, unreported, unregulated fish that comes into our market. So when you think about the U.S. distance water fleet, there's a competitive disadvantage. Our, our um, fishermen are held to standards that we enforce by flag state. You know, when you think about back to the, you know, the national security implications here, you know, was, I'll give you a data point. There's a couple of former Navy sailors here. I was up at the International Sea Power Symposium in the fall of 2018, and we talked a little bit about counter-narcotics, and we talked a little bit about piracy. But what was really on the minds of the navies and coast guards of the world was um, this IUU threat, illegal, unregulated, unreported fishing. A lot of the coastal nations feel like um, they're seeing these distance water fleets operating in vicinity in their sovereign waters. And like I said, many of them have limited governance capabilities. Many of them have little enforcement actions. And this is really a food sustainment and a sovereignty issue that's at play here as well. Sir, I met you at that International Sea Power Symposium up in Newport uh, two years, almost, it was about two years ago now. Right. Um, and and it, to your point, uh, in the uh, the March issue of uh, Proceedings, every year it's our international navies uh, issue, and the Argentinian navies that year, we asked the question, what was their most pressing naval or, or sea power issue, the, the thing that was uh, you know causing them the most heartburn? And the Argentinian CNO uh, sent us uh, a piece about IUU, and in their pictures that they sent was this picture uh, looking out through the cockpit window 
of one of their P3s, and it was at kind of at night or dusk, um, and there were like a city's worth of lights out on the water, and uh, we had to dig through the captions of that of that picture, and what it was was the Chinese fishing fleet uh, for squid, and they said, you know, these are all Chinese uh, vessels. They fish for squid. They're right outside. They loiter right outside our EEZ, and they come into our EEZ when we're, they're not there to patrol and when we can't push them out. But that's one of the constant problems is this uh, huge Chinese fishing fleet, in, that, in their case for Argentina, uh, you know, just uh, scooping up all the squid that would have gone to the local market. So you, you make a really good point there about how this is a concern. Um, can you talk, in addition to Argentina, you mentioned a little bit about Gulf, Gulf of Guinea. Where does you, IUU happen uh, globally? Yeah, and let me just kind of build, build a little bit on what you talked about in Latin America. The Argentinians are having clashes with their naval forces and these Chinese fishermen down there. So it's a very palpable threat. And as you indicated, you know, they operate outside the EEZ, but, um, but, they, but they operate inside the EEZ. You know, this recent example with the national security cutter Bertoff did about four or five days of operations with the Ecuadorian with an offshore patrol vessel doing a joint patrol. You know, they were operating amidst that fleet of about 350 vessels, predominantly Chinese flag vessels or some probably under Ecuadorian flag with some backroom deals that aren't done in the full transparency of, of the public domain. You know, some government officials cut a deal. The general populace doesn't understand that deal. But what we found out there was a small number, a couple dozen we weren't exactly sure what their modus of operandi. We had some concerns about, you know, where they're located versus their AIS squawks. I can't get into much more information there, but uh, we passed that information to the Ecuadorians for potential enforcement action. The Peruvians are concerned uh, up off of Peru. So in Latin America, it's pervasive. In terms, in terms of your question, other parts of the world, very much off the, uh, you know, off of the western coast of Africa. And, you know, for example, Guinea-Bissau, you look at Seychelles on the eastern side, it's an archipelagic you know, nation of 115 islands, and the Chinese are very prevalent off of uh, off of Seychelles. And then we look at the Pacific off of Kiribati. Um, you think about Oceania, which is a you know a stretch of islands from Asia here to out to the Hawaiian island chain. Sovereign nations, small island based. Uh, 50% of their GDP comes from the sea, and a lot of that is uh, is through is through fisheries and. We see presence in those places. So I would tell you it's it's the Pacific, further from China, moving into Oceania. It's the east and west coast of Africa, and it's what we talked about here in the Western Hemisphere off of the east and west coast of uh, Latin America. Admiral Fowler is going to be one of our panelists on Wednesday here, sort of represent, representing the DOD interest because he's getting increasing demand signals from his partners in the hemisphere here. I, I don't remember ever hearing IUU before this, is, is this uh, an ascendant threat when you think of your time as a J.O.? Was this something you had your eye on? Uh, and if so, is this a function of climate change? Is this just the geopolitical landscape is morphing into something else? What, what's, the, what's happening here? Well, I think, I think it's a great question. Well, I think there's a lot of things happening. I think, you know, if you take a look at coastal fishing around China, which is, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of vessels, artesian fishermen, coastal fishermen, and you look at the distant water fleets, you look at a, a nation state that I think has probably overfished their domestic fisheries in their coastal waters, and you start to take to more distant operations, these distant water fleets. So there's there's response to overfished regions of the world that, you know, the demand signal is increasing, yet the ability to harvest fish in your own waters is decreasing. You tend to push these distant fleets out. I think it's 
you know, the ability to have more situation awareness, domain awareness about what's going on in our oceans. That is enhancing. I think it's, uh, you know, we look at population growth that's projected on the African continent. And you think about that in and of itself in the next 25, 30 years is going to be the center of gravity for global population growth. And you think about food sustainment as a critical component of that. Then you sort of link that to 40 percent of protein in that continent alone and consistent with other parts of the world coming from the sea. It's sort of convergence of all that. And now, you know, I think the geopolitical situation, as you intimated, is, is, is a part of this as well. When you think about the number one IUU IU violator because of their fleet size and their reach happened to be China, um, it all comes together as an area where we see this as sort of a clarion call to put a Coast Guard leadership voice into the conversation. We think we can be helpful there. But again, it's it's about collaboration. It's about partnerships, international partnerships. It's about academics and NGOs, you know, increasing transparency, focusing the light on the secrecy that's happening here. But sir, the Coast Guard's got, what, 11 statutory missions in terms of priority and the, the amount of resources that you throw at those missions. Where does this one rack and stack? Well, I think, I think um, Bill, it, we're already doing some of it. You know, if you take an example of success here, you know, we have we have a relationship with the Canadians, with the South Koreans, with the Chinese. And uh, we work this this relationship. North Pacific Coast Guard Forum has been in place for for more than a quarter century. And you go back to the U.N. moratorium on high seas drift net fishing. If you know anything about high seas drift net fishing, it's miles and miles of nets that just ravage the ocean's floor. So anything they suck up when they go back and get hauled in is essentially the bycatch is all killed. And uh, that was found to be a very destructive process working collaboratively. Um, this high seas drift net fisheries essentially was terminated. There was a really good news story there about collaboration. I think now we sort of look at this IAU threat. We have been in this space. Where are we today? I think some of this lends itself well as we deploy ships across the globe. Again, Bertoff counter drug patrol, a couple months in duration, peeling Bertoff off for about a week of operations, a little less than a week to work with the Ecuadorians. We can do that. It's not new mission growth. It's sort of complementary mission space for me as I see it. You know, we've sent a couple national security cutters last year over to the East China Sea, South China Sea to work for uh, Bill Davidson, the Indo-PACOM commander. Some of their work was doing sanctions work against DPRK. Some of it was capacity building with ASEAN partner nations, the Indonesians, the Malaysians, the Vietnamese. Um, I think while we're there, there's an ability to project that U.S. sovereign goodness here. You know, the world's best Coast Guard model free and open oceans, and we model transparent fishing practices. So I think this falls in on, on it's not a just a straight new increased demand signal for more Coast Guard capacity. I think we can do this in and around our other missions. We'll build not a fleet of 25 new offshore patrol cutters in the coming years. are going to really be more globally capable than the 210 and 270-foot ships are replacing. So this is, in my mind, this is the right time, the right place. Or an increased leadership role. We're not going to be the world's fish cops. I am not by any stretch of imagination taking on that role. What I think we bring to this is the ability to synchronize like interests from like-minded nations, other entities, and really channel that to, to have a broader conversation about what is the real threat here, who are the good guys, who are the bad actors, and how do we as a global community get after this? Fish cops, I like that. It's kind of a new show on the Learning, learning Channel. Uh, we should pitch it. Commodore, you kind of answered what I was going to ask Ness about how does the strategy inform the use of platforms and, and op tempo. So would you say that the program of record is, is adequate going forward with this emergent threat? 
You know, Ward, I, th- I think the answer to that is yes. You know, we had a program of record for eight national security cutters with the support of the Congress. We're building out funded through 11 national security cutters, and the Congress felt that was important. Um, we're building out 25 new offshore patrol cutters, and uh, the first two are under construction down in Panama City, the Eastern Shipbuilding Group. And that's going to be a fleet of 360-foot vessels, very capable, a little less speed than an NSC, but uh, skip-enabled, long legs, um, independent operations. I, I think we do have the right fleet. We've got today, as we're sitting here chatting, uh, one of our fast response cutters is en route to Guam, and that ship replaces the island-class 110-foot cutters. That 154-foot fast response cutter is really a game-changer. You know, eight more crew a stern launch boat, really expeditionary capability, operate 2,500, 3,000 miles from its home base. We did some things in recent years um, where we linked it up with a 225-foot buoy tender, sort of a mother ship or support ship. We got more of that planned out in the Oceania region. So we'll have three of these fast response cutters um, here in the next 12, 18 months in Guam. We've got three in Hawaii. I think we can really expand our reach to the uh, – to the Oceania region here in the months to come. So I, th- I think we do have the fleet that enables us to get after this IU threat. And that's a piece of it. It's the fleet piece. Then it's getting folks in the right centers to start to understand the big data analytics. I eventually think we might be looking at a government center, maybe a Coast Guard-led center. I don't want to shoot too far ahead of the headlights here, but I think it's starting to paint the problem, the domain awareness, illuminate it. It's the, it's the capital assets to support it. And it's really about the partnerships. We bring a voice to the U.N., um, IMO, the International Maritime Organization. It's about the right conversations that are happening on the global stage. A lot of moving parts there, but I think the Coast Guard lashes up well to all of them. So specifically, how, how do you lash up with uh, the State Department? Because I'm imagining that um, there must be some part of this that involves demarches and communications, direct formal communications with, with foreign governments, with the Chinese government, for example, or the North Korean government about uh, where they are violating international law uh, so how, how does that work between the Coast Guard and the uh, and the Department of State? Yeah, that's a great question, Bill, and your instincts are right on. Uh, on this rollout event that we'll have on Wednesday, um, we're going to have Ms. Kehoe here, who's from the Bureau of Oceans, and she's going to be sitting on the panel. We absolutely will be working with State Department. Um, as I travel about in my Coast Guard duties, I will be, you know, coming, you know, meeting country teams as we go around and talk about this. I think this is uh, – a topic that is keenly of interest to state. It opens up some other opportunities. We have a new uh, team member here at Coast Guard headquarters and our international affairs staff who's a China expert. I used to work with them years ago and we we're dealing with illegal migration um, from China that was ending up in places like, uh, um, you know, out in the East Pacific Islands where we'd actually interdict them to see there's these large snakehead led smuggling operations that has tailed off in the, in the last 18, 20 years, but uh, we work very closely with our state colleagues. We've got a few Coast Guard liaisons over there, uh, one in the in the um, international kind of law enforcement arena there, INL. we got another that works these oceans issues. So state will be a critically important partner. I think you've heard Secretary Pompeo even call out this IAU threat as he has spoke around the globe, just as he's called out, you know, China operating in the Arctic as a self-declared near-Arctic nation. And I think State is a key enabler to a lot of the Coast Guard work, and we, we tie up closely with state on a daily basis here. And IUU fishing will be no different. So how about the working with DOD part? So the DOD plan, Ward, you know, we already do partnership with DOD on the fisheries front. We have the Oceania Maritime Security Initiative. We call it OMSI. We can take a Coast Guard law enforcement attachment, put it on a 
Indo-Pacom fleet vessel operating in the Oceania region, transiting through, do some fish boarding. So we've got a baseline there. The uh, 2021 National Defense Authorization Bill, that the versions I've seen, has some language in there directing an increased role for the Department of Defense in this IEU mission space. And uh, I think that just signals that there's a much broader appetite and audience interested in this. So, um, again, Craig Fowler being a, a partner in a part of the world where we have, you know, as much capacity as anywhere else, we think that's a good place to start. And this recent, you know, when we were operating with the Berktop down there, you know, he's the supported commander. Uh, we bring the law enforcement authority. We've already got, you know, an established framework working with Southcom on counter-narcotics here in the Western Hemisphere, because this is where, you know, we have a preponderance of our Coast Guard capacity. That seemed like a good place to really um, step in and launch our, our interoperability, our partnership, you know, aid that Ecuadorian threat. You know, obviously, Argentina is a long way and a little bit off vector on the counter-narcotics work, but we see some opportunities. Um, we do Operation Unitas with Latin American partners every year. And, you know, there's usually a gray hull or two involved in that. There's usually a Coast Guard ship on occasion, the Coast Guard ship that served as a U.S. government flagship. But we see all these as complementary fires here where we can uh, kind of step out on this and learn together. So is this a counter China strategy overall, or is that is China just one of the moving parts in a, in a bigger problem? I would say, um, Ward, it is not a counter China strategy, but I think China has the you know largest distant water fleet and uh, reportedly the worst IUU violator is clearly a part of that. And uh, but we're not stepping out solely as a counter China strategy at all. I can refer, tell you that for sure. You know, um, we'll see what the findings, you know, as we illuminate this problem, as we better understand all the aspects of it, we'll start to get a clearer picture on, um, on exactly who are the good, good behavior folks, who are the folks that are, uh, you know, really better understand who are the worst violators. And we hope through increased attention, increased synchronization effort, we'll, we'll start to maybe dissuade people's behaviors because there's just more transparency. What really fuels um, IAU fishing is the lack of transparency. And it's the lack, you know, some of the China fleet has very ambiguous ownership ties. And I think that makes it hard for China, even as a flag state, to understand and regulate their fleet. I think there's some some effort afoot to uh, just deal with uh, fisheries closures parts of the year because of their depleted catches. But, um, you know, we'll understand, is that is that legitimate effort? Is that sort of the scratch international attention? Really, the complexity and the opaqueness is something that this is intended to help get after here. How concerned are you that these might get kinetic? What are the flashpoints here? What does the ROE look like? So I would tell you, Ward, I think really what we want to focus is on it's about good behavior. It's about how do um, you know nations that adhere to the rule-based order, free and open oceans, you know, how do we champion good behavior in the global maritime commerce commons? That's what we want to drive towards. You know, say, what are the ROE? What are the flashpoints? You know, it's again, I don't want to go back to the China problem, but I think it's easiest to talk into that. Um, you know, the China Coast Guard used to be under civilian government control until 2018. And they repositioned under the People's Military Police, which is a direct report to the CCP government. And uh, you hear a lot about the China maritime militia sort of be, you know, in supported, engaged, a true arm of the Chinese government. We're going to see. We're going to under, better understand that. So, again, it is not a counter-China strategy. It's about good behavior and global maritime commerce. We think we bring a very credible, you know, recognized global voice to this, and hence uh, we're looking to lean in and take take that additional leadership role. 
Admiral, what does success look like? You know, a year or two years from now, how do you measure? What are the individual uh, sort of um, ingredients of uh, change behavior? I guess of the distant water fleets, but also how do you measure? Um, you know, the health of the fisheries around the world. Yeah, you know, measuring the health of the fisheries, Bill, is challenging. I think you know a lot of this um, is about where you land fish. You know, right now, you know, fish gets landed in places. Fish gets processed at sea, and there really isn't good accountability. So we don't know what we don't know. I think the health of this would be how do we thicken lines of collaboration against like-minded nations? How do we start to better understand the data that's out there, consolidate the data? I think success to me looks like increased understanding here domestically in the United States, increased global partnerships. And I think when we've illuminated the IUU, the, you know, the, the distant water fleet challenge writ large, and then we see who are those IEU actors within that fleet. I think we'll start to, you know, see who steps up and does, is there just even a big deterrent impact for this when they start to understand the U.S. Coast Guard to put its voice into this as a synchronizer of sorts. I think that's going to be helpful. I and mean, we can bring that voice, as I said, to the IMO. I can bring that voice to the many different entities. I think the Indo-Pacific and their partnerships throughout um, the Pacific Ocean region here in the Western Hemisphere through the combatant commanders. I think, you know, we will define this through understanding. We'll define this through interest. And I, I think at the end of the day, these NGOs, these academic institutions, um, they're going to be absolutely essential to this. This is really about thickening the lines of collaboration and, and understanding the problem better. And really, at the end of the day, increasing transparency and diving into the complexity and the opaqueness that exists right now around IUU. So trawler captain of a, of a distant water fleet ship, uh, Chinese, for example, his behavior may change by what? Uh, radiating AIS more consistently, staying outside the EEZs of other nations, um, uh, accounting for his catch more directly, uh, not processing the fish at sea. What, what are the kinds of things that yeah. will change? I think it's all those, Bill. I think First and foremost, you know, operating with AIS on because, you know, somebody's out there looking if your AIS is on. You know, if you potentially figured out how to spoof your AIS and we have the means of going out there and saying, hey, AIS shows Vessel X is operating here. But in reality, Vessel X is operating there. We could start to reveal some of that uh, landing catch in places where, um, you know, there isn't good accounting for that catch before it's shipped to other parts of the world. That all becomes an important piece of it. It's, it's accountability at the marketplace. And then understanding that about two-thirds of fish in the China example goes back to mainland China. I think that is all, I mean, you, you sort of bound it. Every piece of that is an element of increased transparency, increased accountability. It's flag state ownership of their fleets. You know, what you see right now is, so you got a Chinese fishing boat or some portion of a Chinese fleet, a few hundred strong fishing off the African continent on each coast. You know, they figure out Ghana, Senegal, they got rules about fishing. They, they do a flag change. Now they're, you know, Guyana, Ghana flag, Senegalese flag, fishing in their waters. That's a backroom deal. There's not a lot of transparency there. So it's a, maybe a short-term perceived gain for Senegal, but long-term, you're depleting the fisheries. And you kind of exacerbate that with the global population growth. And you can sort of see where, Short-term gains really are hugely impactful, long-term detriments to these coastal nations got limited governance. You know, we transferred a couple of excess defense article, national or high endurance cutter 378s to Nigerians. 
Um, we do this Africa Maritime Law Enforcement Partnership every year. Last year, we had a 270-foot medium endurance cutter, the Thetis, over there. And she worked with Senegal. She worked with Ghana and Nigeria. And she actually came out with the uh, former 378 and did some joint boardings. I'm hoping to send a, a cutter back there again next year. We, we had about a seven-year gap before Thetis went back here in 19. And uh, I'm trying to get us on a more predictable battle rhythm. In those gap years, we generally send some deployable DSF, deployable specialized force folks, lot lead, lead at teams. They operate on you know, host nation vessels, sometimes on ally partner vessels, but they're out there helping them figure out how to protect their own sovereign interests, how to do boardings, what are they looking for? So we're already in that capacity building space. This this will up that game. The Cutter Bear just came back from working off of Cabo Verde, Verde with the Cabo Verdeans and did some, uh, we have a bilateral agreement with Cabo Verde on maritime law enforcement, including fisheries. So we're doing it today. And what you do see is as global you know, climate change is occurring here. You see some of these migratory species are starting to move a little bit north. So this challenge will move from the water, warmer waters, even into the Arctic waters over the coming decades. So, Commander, you just uh, mentioned my good friend and classmate, Admiral Davidson. We saw him out at West before the world shut down. And he uh, he announced that the Theodore Roosevelt was pulling into to Da Nang at that time. And we didn't really think anything of it. But as Bill mentioned, our August issue included the winners of the Coast Guard essay contest, and uh, three the three winners all wrote about Admiral Davidson's uh, AOR, the Indo-Pacific region. What did you think about what they had to write about? Yeah, I thought there were really three interesting, you know, pieces there. You know, from our enlisted Coast Guards, we're really excited to see his voice into the conversation, talking like a patrol force of Southwest Asia was over in Bahrain, supporting the Fifth Fleet Commander, now Senate Commander, U.S. CENTCOM. You know, that's an interesting evocative piece here to think about what you might do in uh, in the Indo-Pacific. You know, you talk about the lead ads and I mentioned, you know, just our ability to not be fish cops everywhere. But maybe maybe we repurpose some law enforcement detachments into what we call fish debts. You know, their ability to have expertise on fish fisheries is complicated. You know, I, I I've been, done some fisheries in my shipboard days, but I got to tell you, Alaska fisheries, New England fisheries, um, fisheries in the Pacific where you're dealing with. You know, highly migratory species, high value um, species like tuna. It's complex business. So men and women that do that in Coast Guard uniform got to got to be skilled. You got to be versed in the books and the changes. I think there's some real value in uh, in the law enforcement attachments, increased use. But like I said, whether it's a fish dad, whether we still call them lead ads, but they have expertise. I think there's really tremendous um, tremendous opportunities. I'm trying to remember the third article here a little bit. It was. Uh, Oh, the Marines. Yeah, the Marines. I've actually talked to the ACMAC, Gary Thomas, and I've talked to uh, Commandant of the Marine Corps. As, as the Marines orient their new strategy that General Burgers brought to the fight, I say, you know, as you think about the Indo-Pacific and all the demands on the on the gray holes, the bigger gray holes, I think there's some partnership opportunities for small detachments of Marines with the United States Coast Guard. As we sail a national security cutter, an offshore patrol cutter, even an FRC through the region, we might be thickening our lines of collaboration. We bring access to the region. You know, the Coast Guard partners on a human-to-human level out there. We've got history 150 years rich in the Indo-Pacific. So I think there's just a, an opportunity to thicken the lines between us and the Marines, the Navy. I think this IEU fishing is just one additional place to find common interest there and, and common good. Uh, sir, thanks for that. I uh, appreciate you reading the, the August proceedings. Uh, always, uh, you know, as I, I, I tell people, the Coast Guard punches way above its weight in uh, in our pages um, and especially true in the uh, the Coast Guard essay contest every year we get 
uh, a significant number of, uh, of essays. I think we had over 60 this year from the Coast Guard, so it was a great showing. I just wanted to uh, give you an opportunity to sort of wrap up and maybe talk about something non-IUU related, just sort of what's happening, what, what, what's the exciting news from your perspective on uh, Coast Guard manning, uh, personnel issues, and, uh, and as you rebuild the fleet with some of those new uh, Coast Guard cutters, the new capabilities that you're bringing into the force, what do you see happening it's, uh, you know, in terms of good news for uh, the rest of this year in 2021? Uh, so I'll close you with one final thought on the IEU thing, then pivot to that, though. I tell you, you know, think about IEU fishing really exploiting you know, coastal nations with limited governance, limited resources. That's a problem and a, and a lack of transparency. And we're going to try to put some leadership against that. You know, stepping out of IU fishing and thinking, you know, good news going on in the Coast Guard. We've got five um, cutter acquisition programs afoot. We're still building national security cutters. Uh, the ninth national security cutter, the Stone, will uh, be arriving in Charleston here sometime, uh, you know, towards the end of this calendar year. So do our shakedowns, post about um, delivery availabilities. And we look forward to bringing her and 10 and 11 to the fleet. Now security cutters are rocking it. As I mentioned, just came back from the Bertoff. We talked about the Indo-Pacific with Bertoff and Stratton. Offshore patrol cutters, acceptance of the first, we think, fall of 22. And uh, looking to build out the 25 FRCs, the 41st hull. They're, they're, they're repositioning it right now because uh, Hurricane Sally coming into the, you know, the Gulf region down there. We're building those ships at Bollinger. A marine down there in Bollinger Shipyard does terrific work. Um, waterways commerce vessels. This is a fleet of a kind of a cats and dogs, 35 ship fleet, construction tenders, river tenders. We're going to start that acquisition in 2022. Polar security cutter, um, which replaces, you know, the, uh, the polar class icebreakers. Um, we're going to start cutting steel on the first polar security cutter during the new calendar year. And by 2024, have that in the water. And, uh, you know, it's a program record up to three. We're having some really informed conversations with the National Security Council and the Hill about how much real icebreaking capacity does the nation need here. I think that conversation has expanded beyond a decade plus trying to get the first Polish security cutter. Really, maybe we need a fleet of upwards, you know, six, eight, nine icebreakers to operate in the high latitudes. You know, the Antarctic where, where Karen spent some recent time and up in the Arctic where uh, Russia's doubling down and, and China will have more capacity us by 2025. So on the fleet side, there's a lot of good news stories there. You know, what I tell you on the challenge side is um, it's a competitive environment for talent. And while we're in this COVID environment, we haven't figured out the recruiting aspects of that. And I talked to, to my leadership team, you know, in this new blended retirement environment that came to bear on one January, 2018, where a coastie, uh, any sailor, soldier, airman, you know, used to, have, have a Coast Guardsman in about years eight or nine, you probably have them for 20 years. Now in this blended retirement model, you know, at 12 years, they have a decision point and they can pay themselves through a thrift savings plan. We give folks a lot of useful skills in the private sector. You know, you could be a Marine safety technician, first class an E6, working down in the Gulf region, dealing with the liquefaction of LNG. And you can see what the Coast Guard's paying that E6 and his or her family. And then Shell Oil comes around and likes those skill sets and offers them double the money. We've got to figure out how does the Coast Guard remain an employer of choice? We've got to make sure we're looking out for our folks. That's a little more challenging in the Coast Guard budget. Um, we weren't part of that 2018 plus up that came the way of the armed forces for readiness. So I'm working real hard to, to educate the administration and the Hill about how we got left behind a little bit, but, but there's interest, there's support. So I think there's a lot of goodness going on, uh, Warden Bill and the Coast Guard. We're excited. We've never had more demand for our services. That's a good news story. A little bit of challenges, 
you know, you just can't keep spreading the peanut butter thinner or not. So we just got to get after the humans. We got to get after the new platforms. And a lot of that is really a conversation about readiness. And uh, unless we up the top line on our operations and support budget at some point, you know, myself or a subsequent comment is going to say, hey, we can't, we can't, no more cowbell. We just can't keep doing stuff without the commensurate match. We're working hard to have those conversations. I think we're being heard. We had about a 4% increase here in the last year and the, the house mark on the 21 budgets, you know, north of 7%. We're waiting to see where that ultimately ends up here, you know, when the congressional stage of the budget's done. But, but there's a lot of excitement on just the work of the Coast Guard. We're managing the COVID environment. I think we've had as many ships deployed in recent weeks and today that we've had in a long time and, and they're staying healthy and safe. And, uh, you know, one of the realities is our sailors aren't getting any port calls. So you go to sea to see the world. And unfortunately, you're seeing the world uh, at, from sea, not really setting your, your foot on the beach. And I hope that ends soon because uh, that's one of the you know, accoutrements of going to sea was seeing some places. But our, our young men and women are rocking and I'm very proud of them. That's where you get points for the cowbell reference there a minute ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dating myself, right? A little Will Ferrell. Yeah, there. Blue Oyster Cult, man. They're timeless. <laughs> exactly. so, so our guest has been Admiral Carl Schultz, the 26th Commandant of the United States Coast Guard. Commandant, good luck as you unveil the IUU strategy here. Good luck with the execution of it. And thanks for joining us on the Proceedings Podcast today. Hey, Warden Bill, thanks for your interest. And I uh, look forward to, I think, elevating the importance of this topic. I think it's going to be a... Uh, a good space for the men and women of the Coast Guard. I think an important thing for the security of the nation here. Nodge that and keep Commander Millard out of trouble there. I know it's a full-time job. You know, I need more help. It's more than a full-time job. She's rocking. <laughs> She's, She's awesome. All right. Karen, you want to say something? She doesn't want to say anything. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Have sir. All right. That'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you next time. <laughs>